All right, Scott, I know that I talked about cops. What did I say? Cops, cats, and conductors. Yep. <laughs> and I'm sorry to say that I've officially become one of them. <laughs> Never. <laughs> you're a cat? <laughs> Never the, you know, I know you're not a cop. Never the cop and not the cat. So, you know, I'm down here and t- hello, everyone. Uh, Scott and I are doing this <laughs> remotely for the first time in a while. I'm down in Tennessee uh, conducting the world premiere of an opera called I Can't Breathe. It's sold out, which is good news, uh, especially for Knoxville and where it is and what kind of opera this is. I'm sure you can, you know, uh, gather some things from that title i can't breathe oh, yeah. shout out to uh, composer leslie burrs the composer and brandon gibson the librettist of a uh, you can find more information on how to uh, buy streaming tickets at marblecityopera.org but um I, I just have to say scott i have a completely different perspective on the job of a conductor after going through this process this is the kind of score uh, I think Leslie Burrs even referred to the type of music he writes as ethnic classical music. And while that is not a phrase I would use, uh, the, I think right. the point that he's making is that this isn't Mozartian or, you know, Brahmsian, Beethovenian sort of music. There's a lot of those bebop rhythms and and uh, Charlie Parker quotes. So when when you start mm. talking about music that sounds like dum ba ba da ba dee da ba ba dee ba da ba dee ba da and all that, when you see that notated for the classically trained musician, it looks really complicated. But if you can just get into the groove of it, it's not all that bad. Anyway, so my role has been to um, really, and, and Leslie Burrs has really helped a lot with this as well, but getting the orchestra to get into that groove. And, um, you know, one, one of my bosses a long time ago at a school I used to work at, he used to say, fight the white. I feel like I've been doing a lot of Oof. that, no shade. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's really been an incredible, incredible experience. So shout out to all of the conductors. Um, I'm going to have my sweat rag. I used to make fun of the composer sweat, but now I get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's a workout, especially for like a three hour long opera uh, that I'm doing. It's it's, it's something else. But yeah. anyway, it's good to be down here in Tennessee. It's actually a little chillier than I expect it to be. It, it gets down into like 35 and 36 at night. So I oh my wear goodness. <laughs> Up here, people go to people go out in shorts and Crocs in that temperature. Right, right. Minnesota's <laughs> still there. No, 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 nothing too bad has happened in the past few days days right no nothing too bad except for the the uh, potter announcement uh which i know that you're going to talk about but yeah we'll get in uh, we'll get into that in we, the triloquy we do have a winter storm on the way so you nobody's going to be shoveling your walk <laughs> you're yeah. gonna have to do that when you get home i uh, know it's pitiful it's pitiful anyway and shout out to all the people who shovel their walkways because I want to make sure that the kids, especially the reason I get up and do it is for the kids going to school. So they're not having to traipse around in the snow and wait there, you know, yeah. so just, just trying I to do. be a, a good citizen, you know, a class solidarity. We're also going to get into that a little bit today. But anyway, um, so for this week's downbeat, uh, we're going to hear from Paul Robeson. First and foremost, shout out to uh, Bill Morlock, um, a colleague of yours and friend of yours, Scott. He was the person to first say, I've, I'm sure I've said this before, but I'll say it again. He was the first person to say the name Paul Robeson to me when he heard about Triloquy and the things that we're trying to do, music, meeting the world and activism, contemporary culture. He uh, wanted to make sure that I was aware of the legacy of, of Paul Robeson. And we had a whole opus of Triloquy dedicated to Paul Robeson, but we're going to hear uh, from him again in the downbeat. So last week I was... Um, 
chatting and catching up with Caesar, another member of the uh, Triloquy family. Shout out to Caesar Chavetta. And he put me on to some audio that I didn't know existed. So long story short, Paul Robeson uh, was traveling the world doing all this singing and, and, and that sort of thing. He found himself in Russia. And on his account, he felt for the first time in Russia, like he was a full human being. He didn't feel uh, racialized, oppressed, all of those things over there in Russia. So after experiencing that, he went on tour in Russia and would constantly talk about all of the racism that he was dealing with in the United States. Again, this is back in the uh, late 40s and early 50s. So the Jim Crow and all of that stuff was hot at that time. There was still sharecropping uh, situations going on. But anyway, mm. so he's over there talking with the Russians about how fucked up it is in the United States with uh, race relations and all of that stuff. And when he got back to the United States, they took his passport and he had to sit in front of the House Committee on Un-American Activities back in June mm. in 1956. Anyway, there is audio of that session. And we're going to listen to just a little bit of it here today. In Russia, I felt for the first time like a full human being. No color prejudice like in Mississippi. No color prejudice like in Washington. It was the first time I felt like a human being. Well, I did not feel the pressure of color as I feel it in this committee today. Why do you not stay in Russia? Because my father was a slave. And my people died to build this country. And I'm going to stay here and have a part of it just like you. And no fascist-minded people will drive me from it. Is that clear? You are here because you are promoting the communist cause. I am here because I'm opposing the neo-fascist cause, which I see arising in these committees. There's a lot there. And I, I'm going to put the link in the description. I encourage everyone to go and listen to the full audio, because first and foremost, what's so impressive to me is how smooth and how cool Paul Robeson is throughout it and how he quickly, quickly knows how to respond to things. As a matter of fact, at the very end of the clip that I'll put in the description, he starts calling the House members the un-Americans and that sort of thing. And of course, they get angry and say, oh, this meeting is adjourned. And, you know, right. in a breath, Paul Robeson says, as it should be, you know, is <laughs> mm. really incredible to hear how not so long ago, how openly racist and violent people all the way in the House of Representatives were to people of color, to black folks. But anyway, let's bring this back to current day. One of the reasons why I wanted to revisit this today is because in the news, we're seeing things about Russia and what's going on in Ukraine. And I'm not here to break that down because, you know, world politics is is not my bag. But what I wanted to ask you, Scott, um, in conjunction with what we just heard growing up or even in a contemporary way, have you been conditioned to feel one way or another about Russia? Or do you feel like you've been conditioned to yeah, feel one I, way I or see, another? I see what you're saying. Not really. Because um, everything was in the past. You know, it, it was what was. You know, right. we, we, the, the Cold War had finished up, you know, just a few years before I was born, I believe. And everything that we got in the history books was just that. It was mm -hmm. like... It happened. And since, you know, there was perestroika that came up, you know, with, um, I believe it was Gorbachev and Reagan that had this, you know, warming 
uh, relationship. Right. And there was, there was a lot of positivity at that point. And plus, uh, I was going to see a lot of movies when I was uh, first starting to be able to drive. And White Nights, the 1985 film with Mikhail Baryshnikov and Gregory Hines mm -hmm. came out. And it, it was all about a dancer trying to defect you know, right, right. But Gregory right. Hines, Gregory Hines found a career as a dancer over in Russia in it, mm -hmm. you know, so it was showing two different sides in an entertaining way of the film. So not really conditioned to be against Russia. No, but me and my buddies, we did have sort of a joking thing about it. You know, you oh, you got to watch out for the Russians. Sure, sure. But it, but it, it was all joking. Yeah, for me, I feel like in popular culture, again, we, we, I think about the Russian missile crisis for uh, or the Cuban mm -hmm. missile crisis. Uh, for That's example. what I was trying to think of. Yeah. Um, yeah. I feel like for me, there was a slight conditioning against Russia and hearing Paul Robeson speak to his experience in Russia in a purely positive way just opens up my mind about how nuanced some of these conversations are. You know, there's even a mountain in uh, Russia named after Paul Robeson. He he had such a deep impact there. Um, but bringing wow. this closer to the arts, to to Western classical music, I feel like my love of the music of Shostakovich and his story has in itself been a huge contributor to my understanding of Russia and Russian culture. Uh, I can, we can also talk about uh, Prokofiev. You know, he died on the same day as Stalin and and uh, mm. there was drama there. Stalin had one of his uh, friends killed. And so so there is definitely some what I would contextualize as objectively bad, negative things that uh, were going on there. But it's just interesting for me to you know get this from many different directions. My music education being a part of it has has, you know, being in the classical biz for you had any impact in that way. But when we think about the great romantic composers, we're thinking about Russians after all. We're thinking about Tchaikovsky. Yep. We're thinking about Rimsky-Korsakov, et cetera. No, no, no negativity there either. And just like you or, said, or positivity the, the, even, I mean, one way or the other. I would say more positive than negative, just based on the music, because that's some of my favorite, the yeah. romantics. Yeah. You know, of course, you know, we have folks like Rimsky-Korsakov writing music like Scheherazade that, you know, does the whole exoticism thing and, oh, listen to what these brown people's music sounds like. So, you know, I, Tchaikovsky's I think, Nutcracker. Right. Oh, I know the Chinese dance and all of that stuff. So I, th yeah. I think as we move forward, you know, maybe our, our perspective on on that sort of thing will change. But anyway, uh, Paul, Paul Robeson, you know, to get us back to Paul Robeson, he is black history. Paul Robeson is an incredible, incredible example of how music can meet bridging gaps between communities, you know, going over there in Russia where he was received so warmly, he learned the Russian language, how music and music meeting communities can meet activism because he was certainly there and how that activism can meet good trouble. Back in 1956, when he found himself in front of the House Committee for Un-American Activities, I, I think that's uh, what it was called. There are a mm -hmm. lot of people that would have been scared shitless to be in that sort of position, you know, who knows what the government can do. But Paul Robeson stood in the face of that opposition without fear, with full confidence. And I feel like that's what we all have to do. We have had the example of this artist doing this, getting into that good trouble all the way to going to Capitol Hill. Uh, and I feel like we all can do that. That's certainly what we're trying to do here 
on this podcast. So let's get started. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy. The timing is a little different virtually. It is. <laughs> but, but we'll yep. get it. Uh, hello, everyone. Welcome to Opus 130. Is this 139? Yeah, Opus 139 yep. of the Triloquy podcast. To returning listeners, thank you for returning, uh, for all of the continued support and making sure that Triloquy remains a vital and relevant and required body institution within the so-called classical industry. Thank you so much. To new listeners, if you're tuning into Triloquy for the first time, this is a podcast that takes the phrase classical music and works toward decolonizing that. So what do I mean by that? We take music, we take conversation, we take world events and pull them all together. Western classical music for a long time has been treated as an escape. We believe that if we can decolonize it towards creating more proximity to the rest of the world with it all the way to changing what we mean by that phrase, we can see a brighter and better future for all of us in this music industry. For more information on the Triloquy podcast and to find out how to donate to Triloquy, visit Triloquy, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y dot O-R-G. In addition to your support, support for the Triloquy podcast comes from Springboard for the Arts, a local institution in St. Paul, Minnesota, working toward making sure artists have a means to make a living and a life. More information on them at springboardforthearts.org. I also want to thank once again Marble City Opera for having me down to conduct the world premiere of I Can't Breathe, music by Leslie Burrs and libretto by Brandon Gibson. You can buy your virtual streaming tickets online at marblecityopera.org. And also, finally, I would like to thank the San Francisco Symphony for having me in to host a series of modules for DEI training. Scott, one thing that I really believe in and that I'm bringing to this work with the San Francisco Symphony is creating bridges between communities and narratives, conversation, dialogue being a part of that. So what I'm what I'm going to be doing in the next couple of weeks, I've chosen some excerpts from Triloquy interviews and I'm presenting that to the group so that they can hear what some of the narratives are within the field of music and what they think about that, how they can bridge and create proximity to certain communities if they understand the narratives of those communities. So it's really fun mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and really positive doing that work. So thank you to everyone over at the San Francisco Symphony. And with that, we will move into movement one. We're here in movement one a little quicker than we typically are. Maybe maybe this virtual one will be a, a shorter one. We don't we don't gab as much if we haven't had dinner and haven't been smoking <laughs> weed or anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but anyway, you're going to uh, get us started this week in the first movement with what sort of accidental, first of all? The first one is a natural from something that I said in the downbeat. Uh, when I said the Cold War happened a few years before I was born, and I, I meant, you, re- you reminded me, that I meant the Cuban Missile Crisis. And uh, I did a quick little uh, search just to get the correct days. That was just, you know, like a couple weeks in October of 1962. Oh, you weren't around? Um, and, f- and no, I was, I was 1970, remember? Yeah, the best yeah I'm, year. I'm joking with you. But um, 
So just for people who don't know the Cuban Missile Crisis, Russia moved nuclear missiles into Cuba and pointed them right at us. And as we so, learned, and as we <laughs> learned from uh, the the Marvel Universe, the X Men saved the day, right? <laughs> In, that that <laughs> In that canon. In that canon. See that movie, <laughs> right? And then I don't know how I feel about that. Like, because there are people, maybe no one will believe that the X-Men saved the day, but that was something very tense. And I don't know. So maybe I need to mind my own business, but I feel like somebody could pull on a thread there and and say something about that being problematic in some way. But, you know, and just to just to put a closing tip on that, the uh, the Cold War, according to what I found on this quick search, ended December 3rd, 1989. So I was around for quite some time. By the time Did you ever have to hide? under your desk in school for the drills did you, did y'all do that no we never did that Which but we didn't have, have anything a, you know no no but we did have those um stickers on the wall that said you know the basement is a fortified fallout shelter you know things like that so that was creepy to walk around and go damn if we need to get away from radiation well all we have to do is go downstairs <laughs> well you know <laughs> Uh, look, I'll, I'll say this and, and, and we'll we'll get on with it. If we had government bodies, institutions putting the narrative into schoolhouses, especially elementary schools that, OK, just hide under your desk and everything will be fine, knowing everything wouldn't be fine. If the rug is pulled over us so obviously in that way, of course, the rug has been pulled over our eyes when it comes to this whole classical music thing. You know, it all it all connects. It all connects, and we're going to go ahead and get into your accidental. So what you got? (laughs) Kind of reminds me of uh, active shooter drills. Anyway, um, I found an article. I've been doing some in-depth research of William Grant still. And uh, since this is going to be the last opus that we record for Black History Month, I Mm -hmm. thought that it would be a good idea to get to some of his music. And I found some things that sort of made me shake my head blink and reread in a in a um, flat sort of way i'm i'm gonna say a sharp i'm okay. surprised i'm surprised all right um so what i'm looking at here is the portland youth philharmonics blog portlandyouthphil.org william grant stills troubled history they did a five-part series on it and in part four it talks about the 30s and 40s being William Grant still at the the height of his powers as far as, quote, serious music goes. Mm -hmm. Um, But dearest to him, it says, was choral music and his eight operas, the most famous and infamous of those is Troubled Island. And that's something that he was working on uh, based on a play by Langston Hughes. It was all about the Haitian Revolution and its first leader, Jean-Jacques Dessalines. it says the libretto was begun by Hughes, but finished by Verna Arvey, which was uh, William Grant Still's wife. And I went, okay, what's up there? Mm-hmm. So they had parted ways over political differences. William Grant Still and his wife. No, no, no. Uh, Langston Hughes and William Grant Still oh, gotcha. parted ways. Gotcha. Verna then finished the libretto. The reason being is because. William Grant still was anti-communist. He was against all of these uh, ideas and against the fact that, that, or this thought that black people would be 
welcomed or 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 better better off there so he thought going um, and 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 really that even requires a bit of a breakdown because if we haven't been conditioned to feel a way about Russia, we have definitely been conditioned to feel a way about the word communism. And I feel mm-hmm. like the context of that term back in those days was a little bit different because we have folks like Angela Davis, who you know was quoted as saying that she um, is a proud communist. You know, I, I feel like socialism is the more polite word that folks use today. But I just want folks to understand that. Back in those days, when they were talking about communism, I believe they really were talking about class solidarity. They were talking about a system closer to what we contextualize today as as socialism. Just you know, to make that point sure, of clarity. Sure, and there is a distinct. There's an important distinction between those two isms. Of course, socialism. But um, I want to pull this this comment here because after uh, Troubled Island premiered, there was like 20 minutes of ovation after yeah. the show critics panned it and it was like pushed down right so here's this quote perhaps still's worst sin from the perspective of white and black america was his outspoken anti-communism during the post-war era which made him something of a pariah particularly in liberal white circles his politics were the polar opposite of paul robeson the famous and still revered singer who was the victim of virulent anti-communism and racism Mm -hmm. so Here's my question. He's writing in, quote, the serious, acceptable way at this point, right? He's anti-communist, and yet they try to suppress his opera, Troubled Island. Well, what, because, because, oh, well, go ahead. Shouldn't, go ahead should, shouldn't, shouldn't the anti-communism piece ingratiate him? to the more conservative listener in the States? Look, this is very important. And I'm so glad that you have brought this in. So we have William Grant still, as you've said, who is writing in this Western style. Yes, infusing blackness in it, but still very much writing in that, you know, Western paradigm of symphonies, opera, ballet, all of that sort of thing. He had these beliefs that in those days, the white folks were more comfortable with because it, it sounded different than what Martin Luther King Jr. would eventually talk about, Malcolm X, all of these folks. And yet his blackness still kept him out. And I think that connects to things today. I feel like there are so many uh, classically trained musicians, Western classically trained musicians of color who think that there is some way for them to become acceptable. But in an mm-hmm. ecosystem of racism, that is absolutely impossible. Brandon, you know, I've been shouting out Brandon Keith Brown a few weeks in a row. He speaks and writes to the exact same point. There is nothing that you can do to really be one of them, at least in mm-hmm. that way. So I feel like that has to be accepted and understood. And what it makes me think about, Scott, is, is that one of the reasons, you know, with with, with the fact that, you know, his blackness kept him out of certain spaces still. We do know his name. And when we think about black composers, he's one of the first names to come up, if not the first name. A hundred percent. Is that respectability why that has happened as opposed to us learning or not having learned about the Julius Eastman's, for example, mm-hmm. because of his lack 
of respectability. That's what it makes mm. me think about the whole conversation. I, I feel mm. like, you know, and we're not going to bury, I'm not going to sit here and bury William Grant still on my, on my platform. He's written some of my favorite pieces of music. That article that you have pulled up mentions Saji, and that doesn't get a whole bunch of play, but I have it on vinyl. I listen to uh, multiple recordings of it digitally. I put it into that, um, that series I did, The Sound of 13. Uh, so anyway, all, all of that to say, I appreciate William Grant Still's music and what he has offered us as far as how we can have the conversation today. And I feel like moving forward, we're going to have to take our critical eye to his place in the ecosystem and understand that some of his respectability is why we know his name. Mm. Um I also want to say that I am in no way tearing him down. I'm saying I'm surprised. I, you know, I, I, I was a little taken aback to find the information, right? Yeah. And I think that it speaks to the fact that no culture is a monolith. Right. That there are, there are slices within it, and we need to get away from that idea. And I have not heard a piece of William Grant Still's music that I haven't liked. And as yeah. a matter of fact, William Grant Still, uh, his... Um, Miss Sally's party. That's a jam. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's, I love that one. And yeah. even the, and even the whole story of it, like, doesn't someone put a frog down someone's back so they lose a right. dancing contest? <laughs> yeah. That's the cakewalk, the cakewalk movement. You bet. So it spins a mess out here for a while. <laughs> right. And, uh, that's the reason why I'm going to bring in William Grant Stills music in the second movement, because yeah. it was among the first recordings that I played as I started into this career 30 some odd years ago. Right. I want to get back to something that you said. No community is a monolith. Let's break that down a little bit. So, you know, from reading this article and, and thinking about this, basically what you're saying is that back in William Grant Stills day, as difficult as it was for black people just in general. You had somebody who happened to make it into, to some degree, into the uh, Western classical realm. And then you had people who were against him because of mm -hmm. his social politics and that sort of thing. And maybe that created barriers between those communities and Western classical music, if that's a good thing or, or bad thing or not. But I guess I'm asking, is, is that what you're getting at? That his exactly. social politics separated him from other black folks, other communities of color? Exactly. Um what I was thinking about as I read it was uh, in the last election cycle leading up to the election, mm -hmm. our current president said something about, unlike the black community, the Latino community has loads and loads of different, right. you know, and, <laughs> and, and I, I'm on the other end going, you're like, but, well, <laughs> <laughs> you're like, mm. uh, <laughs> and then also, you know, I'm, I'm going to hear you out. He, I'm he had nerve to go on the Breakfast Club and say, "Well, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black." So, it's gonna be a I'll, what, what I'll say to that is, it's gonna be a lot of black people, uh, in his definition, who ain't black in 2024 when we vote or whatever. But that anyway, this is not the polit the politics podcast. Um, the, um, <laughs> I like William. Gra I like William Grant still. <laughs> I like his music, is what I'm saying, and I was interested to find this information. And I think that it's important for people to realize that he was doubly damned, mm -hmm. you know, for, by some for being anti-communist and by everybody else for being black. So this is, this is why I have fixed my phrase. You know, when I say I'm rooting for everybody black, who's rooting for everybody black, 
Uh, you know, it sounds like William Grant still wasn't rooting for everybody black based on what you say, if he felt like some sort of class solidarity would actually hurt black people. Or maybe he was rooting for them in a way that was different. Uh, it, it reminds me of a conversation that I was having. Shout out to uh, Jamie Ali Law. She's performing in this opera. She's also on the leadership council with me of the Black Opera Alliance. We had some drinks last night and, and we were talking one of my challenges, you know, again, going back to the whole, you know, no community is a monolith. If it were up to me, when it comes to opera, most of these institutions would be torn down and we need to build back up something that represents more of us. At the same time, I understand that there are black folks who want to go sing and be featured at the Met or La Scala overseas, Washington National Opera, whatever the big opera houses are that have been around uh, since the days of Jim Crow and slavery. That's another conversation, you know, because what are we supposed to say about institutions that were built during those times? They were built to keep certain people out. And we're still mm -hmm. seeing that as far as programming and all that stuff is concerned. Anyway, because there are black folks who want to engage those spaces and if I'm someone who is rooting for everybody black, who's rooting for everybody black. That means I have to create space for them to do that. Although to a degree, it goes against what I'm working for. So while that can sort of be contextualized as seen as a bit of dissonance, I've had to come to terms with that non monolithic nature of communities and try to find every way that I can to, to bridge gaps. You know, it's, I think that's, an important part of the work. I wonder how you, I mean, is there any way that you've dealt with compromising your own values for the sake of something greater, maybe in a, in a similar way? Yeah. Nothing that I could outline since I'm feeling on the spot, all of a sure, sudden, nothing, yeah, that I yeah. could out, nothing I could outline right now, but I believe so. And I think that the work that you're doing very much uh, helps people of color do whatever it is that their dream is I, I don't think that you hate on anybody just because they would want to go and sing uh not an out, opera by not out not out loud <laughs> <laughs> you know i was uh, so basically garrett said not as far as you know right uh, <laughs> I'm, um i want to shout out uh mike combs a percussionist with the knoxville symphony a former colleague of mine he's um housing dell and i for the first half of uh, our, our stay here and he was playing uh wuot throughout the house so i'm you know I'm, I'm listening to you know my my old radio station and there's a promo that comes on for today's episode of performance today which features randall gooseby and i'm rooting for randall gooseby we have shouted him out and featured a lot of his music on this podcast I can't help but to think about the word tokenization. And that is what really drives some of my opinions about Black people needing to divest from some of these institutions because there are people who are listening to that interview with Randall Gooseby or that will be listening to that interview with Randall Gooseby today, hear him speaking and playing very much within the lines of the traditions of Western classical music and think mm -hmm. of that as progress. I, I stand very much against that, and I stand very much with Randall Gooseby. So I guess that's another uh, example of, of sort of the nuance that I have to deal with when we talk about communities not being monoliths, because there's a lot of ways forward, but I think we all have to just be aware of the way 
forward. I think, you know, in talking with Randall and, and knowing who he is as a person, he understands where we have to go in changing these aesthetics and, and opening up the doors. That part of his work isn't always highlighted in these traditional or more traditional spaces. So that, that that's just what I want to make sure that folks are aware of when they go take these opportunities to always think about the ways in which they are being tokenized. You know, we, we talked about uh, Paul Robeson um, at the you know United States House of Representatives. I've been at the Minnesota State Capitol to you know beg for money or 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 do whatever, and 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 for right. folks to be like, oh hey, this is the uh, diversity in X, Y, and Z. That is not lost on me. It's, it's not that I'm not thinking about that, and I understand the opportunity that's there. So as we all move forward in this work, I think we all just need to, uh, and I'm including myself in this. Remember the nuance of all of these conversations. It's never an uh, if or sort of conversation. I'm, I'm believing more and more in both and conversations. As long as we still have our eyes ahead, have our eyes on the prize and are thinking about ways to bridge communities to to get into uh, to, to to change this whole this whole ecosystem. I'm mm. and yeah, we'll, we'll we'll move on from this in a second, but. I don't know. What what do you think about that? Like, let, let's go back to the Randall uh, Gooseby uh, uh, example, you know, someone who is really shaking things up in his own way, but is still within the lines and how that can be weaponized toward fortifying these structures, similar to what we were talking about last week, really, if you remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll say again, my belief that we need people working at all levels. Yeah. Um, I, I think that Randall Gooseby playing the music that he does on that major label. Yeah. That's a, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I think that it, if nothing else, having his presence there in that way, at least gets people who aren't used to seeing that mm-hmm. used to the idea. So it's a, it's a building block that's way further down here in the junior level, man. It's, it's right way down here, and but it's necessary right. for some. As long, right, you make a good point. As long as that is understood, as long as we understand that that is the C spot run level of the conversation when we talk about inclusion mm-hmm. and diversity and all that stuff in the mm-hmm. arts, I'm fine. I just have a problem with the fact that there are a lot of people who think that is the destination. You know, having black people get on stage and singing Rigoletto is the destination instead of new operas with new aesthetics actually being the destination, you know. Good point. Yep. Anyway, um, so anyway, that, that again, that that got a sharp from you, correct? Uh, what piece of music yeah. did you want to transition out of this with? A, a piece of music by William Grant Still or someone else? No, since um, uh, I'm going to use William Grant Still in the second movement. So here, since uh, Troubled Island was about the Haitian Revolution, I thought it would be a good idea to visit some music by a uh, Haitian composer, and yeah. I found I found one that I was not familiar with, and I did some listening to Ludovic Lamotte, but you said that you did know this name. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and all of my rule breaking at, <laughs> at at your job, he made a regular appearance. I think even during the uh, George Floyd uprisings, again, you know, you talk about uh, uh, the Haitian Revolution and Troubled Island, I think, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago with uh, Victoria Joseph when she, when she was the guest, but I think a lot of Black folks, when we think about uh, the situation of liberation and really taking the bull by the horns, taking our country back and X, Y, and Z. And that can sound, you know, 
dangerous and conservative, depending on who you are, take our country back. But anyway, I feel like a lot of black people point to Haiti. So for that reason, uh, he was already a composer that I knew, but I'm glad you're on to him now. Yeah. And one thing that I want to point out, I might be stepping in it here, but in the research that I found, one of the first things it brings up is he was known as the Haitian Chopin. Okay. Oh, here we don't, fucking don't, go. Don't, don't do that. <laughs> Where's my, where, there we don't go. Don't do that. Right. So all I'm saying is I'm pointing this out so that going forward, you don't do that. Don't do that. And it's happened Just more. It's happened more than people realize because we have had the black Mozart conversation when it comes to Joseph yeah. Bologna, but we have to the, remember the black that they, Dvorak. Yep. Uh, they called um, Samuel Coleridge Taylor the black mauler, you know, so mm -hmm. just just stop mm -hmm. it. Just stop it. And not to mention that it might be somebody black over in Poland while you talk about the uh, the black <laughs> Chopin. <laughs> right, well, right. well, let's say their names as well. The black people. That, right. Anyway, I'm, I'm getting off track. Ludovic Lamotte. What else about him? Don't call him the uh, don't call him the Haitian Chopin. That's all I got to say. I, I love the sound of his music. It sounds like it's on an upright piano, and I just felt like I was in a. Uh, it, it just took me to that spot, you know, sort of a, um, you know, maybe a dance hall in Port-au-Prince or something. Sure. Well, let's listen to a bit of his uh, piano music here. Uh, opening of his five piano pieces. This one is subtitled Album Leaf Number One. Let's go there real, real quick. Not, not for long. When I listen to that music, when you listen to that music, you don't necessarily hear it being black. You know, you just, you just hear beautiful piano music, right? Mm -hmm. Why does it matter? Like one of the emails that I'm sure you get all the time, I certainly got them all the time when I mention, you know, these folks' background when we listen to, to this music. Why does it matter, in your opinion, to mention his being Haitian, to mention his blackness, considering the object, maybe not, I shouldn't say objective beauty, but just the, the aesthetic is one that isn't mm -hmm. challenging. So why is it important for us to mention his race? A lot of people will, I'm not going to say a lot. I have a handful of haters that write on a regular basis that say, um, essentially, I'm going to clean it up. They say, essentially, why can't we be colorblind in this instance? And my response is color blindness then negates the person. If you are, oh, thanks. I guess the <laughs> delay really did play it. <laughs> it really did Keep play going. a factor there. Um, the the blackness is the bedrock of the person. You know, this it is a, an integral part of the person, and therefore the part of the music. And if I did not say that this person was black or Afro. Uh, what, what would that be? Afro Haitian? Uh, I mean, I would just say Haitian. Uh, uh, I, I, yeah, a, okay. a Haitian person is yeah, a black I, person. Yeah. So, if I didn't tell you that it was a Haitian person, 
what would your assumption be? Right, right. That it was right. that it was some obs- that it was some obscure white composer. Mm-hmm. Okay, I need to. It then I, I need to. D- right. I need that's, to tell. The then point. I need to tell you that. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm sorry if that offends some of my listenership, but that is the case. That if I didn't tell you, it's not like it's a woman's name, and you would get that just because mm-hmm. I said the woman's name. You know, but Ludovic Lamotte, that could, that could be a white French guy. Right, right, right. Exactly. So, so I have to tell you. We have to remember and continue to remind ourselves, all of us, that when we talk about race, it's not just skin deep. I, I know for a fact, even maybe even William Grant still himself, Scott, would draw issue with saying that that color is the bedrock of who people are. You know, maybe he would say something like, oh, no, I'm a composer first and blah, 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 whatever. Uh, you know what I'm saying? It's more than no, I'm, I'm affirming what you're saying, because it's more than that. When when I hear you say that, you know, blackness is the bedrock of of many people. We're not just talking about skin color. We're talking about the reverberations and the impact and the manifestations of that. So mm. being, you know, the great grandson of slaves is significant. That's something that plays mm-hmm. a role even today in the way that I exist in the world. Um, being black has directly impacted where I can go and where I cannot go, the conversations I have, the activism that I engage in. So that that is why that has to be affirmed. It's more than just skin color. Race is more than skin deep. It's a unique experience and a unique experience that sometimes pops up through the music. And maybe sometimes it's not as obvious as we just heard with Ludovic Lamotte. But the point is, is that it's important to name that because they were going through a lot down there and are still going through a lot down there. And despite it all, there were still composers who managed to write beautiful music, even beautiful music for the pretty white experiences of the typical audiences here in the uh, United States. Anyway, let me let me calm down before we get I don't know. I, I listened to that. <laughs> I listened to that and I was just feeling like that sultry night sort of vibe, you know, yeah. and maybe, maybe two people dancing in these long strides. And, of course. Yeah. Uh, Very Victorian, even uh, giving me interview with a vampire, you know, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and that's the thing down there in Haiti is I, I'm not going to, you know, talk about voodoo or nothing here, but anyway, me let neither. me go ahead and get into my uh, accidental. So I'm going to give this one, I'm going to give the sentiment at least of, what this article lays out they go flat so i'm reading Uh-oh. here from the guardian.com this came out a couple of days ago the title is how is this classical music composer's fury at grammy's shortlist so of course i read the headline and i was like oh i'm talking about this there's there's a there's been so much going on in the news uh and I wish I could bring it all in. So if, if there are things that you're aware of that I haven't talked about, I'm just, you know, we're working to not be here all day, week after week. But anyway, that, that's, <laughs> that's what I decided I needed to bring in. Let me read a little bit of this. It says, when is a classical music composition not actually classical? This is the conundrum now at the heart of a heated row over the shortlisted songs for the Grammys, the annual awards that will be handed out in a few weeks' time to recognize outstanding contributions to music. A number of musicians have collectively expressed their outrage that nominations for the Classical Music Awards include recordings they consider anything but classical. Letters of complaint have been sent to the organizers, the Recording Academy, arguing that the tracks in question by two separate artists, John Batiste and Curtis Stewart, have been miscategorized. 
this is mm. our bag, Scott. Like, you know, the question, what is classical music? What I want to pull out from this first is that the evolution of this concept and this conversation is really starting to appear in more and more places. It warms my heart every time I read an article and see the phrase Western classical music because I feel like there's mm. some attention being paid. Uh, but as we're seeing here, decolonizing that phrase classical music and the aesthetics of music that surround it are really challenging the artists, the composers who are at the head of it all today. I think that we often think of contemporary composers as being on our side because they're fighting marginalization against another recording of Brahms or another recording of whatever, you know, but at the same time, they're pushing back against uh, what I believe is the direction we need to go in. I just think it's interesting that the nuance of that conversation is beginning to at least attempt to separate those of us who are in it today, the contemporary mm -hmm. composers versus the composers who reach outside of that traditionally classical bag. I, I don't know. I think it's mm -hmm. interesting. When the third and fifth, I believe, symphonies by Beethoven were premiered, mm -hmm. reviews said, how is this? <laughs> this this isn't Come on. music. I'm telling you, the, most of the, of the, the canon that we listen to, and I'm not going to say most, there are many pieces in the canon that we listen to that were panned and booed at their premiere. And then, you know, you, you give them a couple decades or a couple hundred years and all of, sudden, years, it's, yes. <laughs> all of a sudden it's the zenith of, of the form, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Bizet's Carmen panned terrible at yeah. the premiere today. It's one of the most performed. Um, uh, I, th oh, gosh, yeah, I, I forget what date it was. I think it was like the 1808 premiere of so much Beethoven music in a cold theater and everything that people are like, ew, this isn't what you normally give us. We don't like this. Yeah. Just let's, let's wait a couple a couple years and see what people think about it after it evolves. Let me, let me spill a little bit more tea here. Since, getting, it's, getting, since it's in the, getting, go ahead. Churned up. No, I was just saying, I'm getting all feisty. Uh, it, it's so there's a it cites a letter written by composer Mark Niekrug, whose music I, I am familiar with, and I definitely know his name and have aired his music. Anyway, it says here in a letter to the Academy, he wrote, quote, as a serious, dedicated composer of what has always been considered classical music, I am dismayed. I have spent 60 years studying and laboring at this precise craft. It is unfathomable that an organization which is supposed to have some inherent knowledge of music would choose to recategorize an entire segment of our inherited culture. What I hear in that statement, Scott, is someone who actually has to compete and isn't happy about it. I feel mm -hmm. like it's been so easy in decades past for pieces of music that strictly fit into that uh, that traditional conception of classical music to be successful. That now that they have to you know compete against something a little bit more innovative, a little bit more culturally competent and relevant today, they're upset about that. It reminds me of the whole conversation of people seeing equity and equality as oppression when actually you're just experiencing having to compete in the ecosystem mm. in, in whatever way. That's what I hear about that now. So next time uh, you happen to have some uh, Mark Niekrig 
music on your playlist. What, what, what's the break going to be? <laughs> you, you, have, you have to talk <laughs> about this. You have to Indeed. bring this what up. What is the break going to be? <laughs> what do you say? What would you say to the people that look at it as just a means to categorize? You know, like you have sections in a record store. What do you say to those people go, yeah, but you know, this over here has a whole orchestra or whatever, and this has, you know, a trap set. It's for them, it's a category categorization thing. What do you say? I think we have to ask ourselves why those categories exist. I feel like it connects back to capitalism because it's all about marketing. When someone sees right. the phrase classical music connected to something and they are culturally or through their experience, whatever, have experience there, I think that it's used for that reason to you know rope those audiences in. That is exactly why I believe it's a good thing to allow different aesthetics into the room when we use that phrase classical music, because that means the tried and true person who goes to the music store and goes straight to the classical music section and look through the CDs or whatever. Now they have a chance to hear something different and to engage a broader aspect of the world because it's being included there. So any critique about something not being classical music, especially American music and especially black American music, I completely dismiss. And honestly, as 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 uh, much as people will push back on me, consider it a manifestation of racism. You know, being racist, uh, acting on racism is more than just hating the black body. Again, we're, we, were, we were just talking about race being more than skin deep. So when you are rejecting Black experience, uh, Black musical aesthetic, all of those things, that is what racism looks like. And I'm not here to necessarily call uh, the composer a racist. But what I am saying is that when the question is brought to me, when I'm asked, that's where my mind goes, because I don't hear anything that isn't classical. You know, as a matter of fact, uh, one of the pieces uh, that is being complained about, uh, uh, specifically the John Batiste, we have featured on Triloquy, and I, I mm -hmm. didn't even give it a second thought of it being something classical. I think we celebrated the fact that it was at the Grammys. The other part of the conversation, of course, we have to get away from this idea that we are validated through institutions like that, you know, because great music doesn't need that. Drake himself, mm. you know, a few years ago, my favorite male rapper, you know, <laughs> he, when he mm. uh, won uh, Grammys a few years back, I forget for what album, maybe for the Scorpion album, he got up on that stage and said, listen, you do not need one of these. This is not validating me and it doesn't validate you. And of course, they cut half his speech. But I feel like in conjunction with challenging the traditional aesthetics of what we allow into, you know, the classical Grammys or whatever, we also need to move away from needing that sort of validation. I mean, I don't know if you are officially an award-winning radio host, but do you need for a few of your breaks to be submitted to something? And, and oftentimes you got to pay to submit and then they select from that. Do you need that validation to consider yourself a great radio host? I don't think so. I don't. Unless you, right. So uh, we, we need to get into that mindset when it comes to our music and our art and our, our compositions as well, you know. Um, I think it's I think it's something. So shout out to John Batiste. Thoughts and prayers to Mark Nykrig. I I'm sorry that he feels away, but I guess you're gonna have to write something that we actually you know want to hear. No shade, no shade, but shade. Look around you, everybody. You are at an <laughs> inflection point. You are at the point that will be referenced in the future as the beginning of the change. 
And 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 before, we, and before we transition out of this, let me just say, the opposition is real, and that's one of the things I've been trying to uh, talk to the San Francisco Symphony about uh, in, in in these equity trainings and things. The opposition is real, so we have gotten so used in this Western classical industry of what I've been calling this toxic positivity. We're all getting along. All the music is so beautiful, X, Y, and Z, but it's become such so much of an echo chamber that opposition and work toward evolving it, you know, see as seen as us trying to tear it down and destroy it, but we're trying to make sure it survives. It's only going to survive if we make it more relevant to more people. So that's what all of this is about. And sorry if you hear the uh, garage door opening below me. We're doing. I was just about to say, did the air conditioner kick on or something? (laughs) We're we're doing the best we can, everyone doing this virtually. All right. Well, anyway, since we have already shared music by John Batiste, specifically the piece of music that's nominated for a Grammy, I thought I would um, share and transition out of this with another one of the tunes in question. So the artist is Curtis J. Stewart, an incredible composer, violinist, and um, a multidisciplinary artist. Uh, the album is called Of Power. I'll, I have it linked in the description of this, but I'm going to share um, one of the tracks from that Grammy-nominated classical album. Let me hit my thing for that. Grammy-nominated classical album. This uh, track is called Improvisation on Paganini Caprice number 11. So it fuses some of the old and some of the new. Let's take a listen. What are your thoughts on that? On, on just a lot on, going on, on in first there. On, on first listen. Well, what do you? What There's do you a lot think? going on. Yeah, I found myself bopping, and then all of a sudden the tempo would change or the beat would change, and I go, "Oh wait, I'm not on the one anymore." See, keep keeping you on your toes. <laughs> see, you know, was, making yeah. sure you're not leaning too deep in. Is that something? You know, putting you on the spot. Is that something? If you were on a Grammy committee, that you would uh, you would include in the classical category? Man, good one with the way that my thought process has worked up till recently, probably not really. Where would you put it pop or what? (laughs) I don't know where else it goes other than classical. I mean, the name Paganini is in the title and we're hearing excerpts from that. And it's obviously violin. I don't know where else it should go. Yeah, that's a good point. I can't think of anything either. It seems like that would be the only slot for it. If we're paying attention to those labels. Yeah. Let me, uh, but before we move on, let me just read a couple more things here um, from the from the article. Uh, Stewart, who studied at the Eastman School of Music in Rochester, has performed as a classical soloist at the Lincoln Center and Carnegie Hall and held chamber music residencies at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And then at the end here, it says, Batiste studied at the world-renowned Juilliard School in New York City. In 2018, he received a Grammy nomination for Best American Roots Performance and uh, has won an Oscar for uh, a number of his other bits of work so not only 
are these so-called, you know, classical composers. They have been at your institutions. It's not like they are pulled out off the street. They they went to your Juilliards and your Eastman schools of music that you love and and celebrate so much. So that's what that's that's what I have to uh, say there. So again, shout out to them. And we're moving on to the second movement where Scott and I take the second ending. We take a piece of music that we've been living with for a while this week. And instead of repeating it again fully, we listen to a bit of it and talk about why we've been repeating it. Let's start with you this week. Uh, you said you wanted to return to a piece by William Grant Still this week. The, yeah, the anti-communist, huh? <laughs> since I found that article. Yeah, and this reminds me of when I was itty-bitty, just maybe 19, 20 years old, and first turning on the microphone to announce classical music. Yeah. And William Grant Still was there. You know, I mean, this was part of my... Cutting my teeth, as you say, yeah. at UOT. Yeah, so this is me cutting my teeth. And this exact recording of the Oregon String Quartet of the Lyric Suite is the one that I, I consider the benchmark. You mm-hmm. know how when you're really drawn into a piece of music, that first recording that you hear is the one you measure all others up against. Right. So this is, this is that for me. But The movement in particular that really speaks, especially now, is the quiet one. Because when you think about people like, um, you know, we talked about Randall Gooseby doing Mm -hmm. work at some level. You're doing work at some level. I'm doing work at some level. I know that there are people listening who feel like they don't have a way to participate. Yeah. That they don't have a way to help. And I say that even the quiet people, even the people who are a little scared about the situation, I think can do something quietly, behind the scenes, low key. Also mentioned that, you know, this is a movement of a suite where William Grant still is writing about many different types of folks he knows. So another, for example, another movement is called the jovial one. So, you know, he mm-hmm. has all sorts of uh, different types of folks in his life. That's the quiet one. This is where the idea of nuance to the conversation and accepting more ways forward is coming into play. Because Scott, when you talk about doing things quietly, doing things behind the scenes, I can't help but to think about all of the people who will send me messages like, you know, oh, good job and X, Y, and Z, you know, just between us. But I don't see that type of energy out of them publicly. Maybe that's because they want to keep their job or or not upset family or or friends or whatever. So while I definitely accept what you're saying, there is behind the scenes work that has to happen. I can't help but to 
think about all of the situations in which the idea of doing the work behind the scenes has been used as a means to not actually do the work, work. an excuse to not do in the same way that we say, oh, well, you know, this is a a long conversation and, you know, I'm, I'm playing the long game. When people say they're playing the long game, I hear them saying, I'm not playing the game at all. You know, that just being an excuse to not immediately act. But with all of that, I do affirm that there are examples of people actually doing the work behind the scenes. I just think, I don't know, I would encourage those people to find ways to inspire others. See, that's the point. It's not about Mm -hmm. proving to anyone that you're doing any kind of work. For me, it's about inspiring others. And you can't inspire others if you're keeping all of your good work, however you define that, close to the chest or or behind the scenes. So that that that's the both and I'll I'll offer to that part of it. I understand that. I get it. And you know that I, that's where I diverge because I I believe that there are people doing quiet work a lot. I'm yeah. thinking about I'm thinking about the single mother that of course doesn't want to open up her mouth at, at her job because if she loses that she loses a lot. Um I'm thinking about um the, but see, uh, and even the, in that, even in that situation, yes, the single mother who needs to keep that job, and I affirm that. I want to inspire that single mother to find something that she doesn't have to hide herself within. Because how safe are you in that space if you can't speak up? What what, yes, what is what and, is your actual rapport with these your colleagues, these so called friends? If on the other side of you're making some statement that speaks to your truth is you're getting fired. I want to liberate those people. I want to empower those people. I don't see it as empowerment of being in a situation to where you have to keep your mouth shut for the sake of X, Y, and Z and doing other work behind the scenes. That doesn't feel like empowerment to me. Yes. And in the meantime, they're doing what they can. Yeah. Yeah. In the I, meantime, you know, my, my own, go ahead. No, I'm just, you know, I, I totally understand what you're saying because yeah. I know people like that. Yeah. I know people like that, but I can't make that assumption about all. Right. Because, you know, it, it's, it, we go back to that conversation that we had about trust and you have to give it to get it. Right. So I am, I am trusting that the people who are not showing the work that they're doing are actually doing something. Yeah. And I'm, I know I'm, that a lot of people listening are that way. So I, I'm just affirming my position and yours at the same time. It's a yes. I, I mentioned the show performance today earlier and, and, you know, it, it has me thinking. So, you know, that piece, the quiet one, it was on the playlist of the first time I guess hosted performance today. So, you know, I, I wanted to make sure that I spoke not only to blackness, but highlighting the aesthetics of communities that aren't always centered. So um, I included uh, in that first episode, again, of Performance Today that I guess hosted a recording of the Knoxville Symphony where I played at the time, our recording of a mandolin concerto by Jeff Midkiff. It was very mm-hmm. much Appalachian, you know, when you think about folk music and the mandolin and all of that stuff and is meeting the orchestra. We had to raise money to get the rights to air it on uh, performance. It was no easy feat at all. You know, there was a, uh, I think, uh, Visit Knoxville uh, sponsored that. Shout out to uh, Visit Knoxville for writing that $5,000 check so that people could hear something other than another Mozart, whatever. But anyway, whoa, I think about that. Because the first piece, again, on that hour of programming was the quiet one. And I just want 
to bridge these gaps. And while I center Blackness and I center Black equity, I include other populations. There are people here in Appalachia, where I'm sitting right now, who need to be who need to see themselves and what we're doing and including those folk aesthetics, bluegrass, whatever, you know, within the space that we call classical music is just as important. I've believed in this thing for a long time. I've, I've been doing this work for some time. You know, no one can ever check me. Well, remember in the uh, New York Times article about Triloquy, they were like, we we shifted our, our focus, you know, in response to George Floyd or whatever. And I, I can get why they say that, but we've we've been in this conversation. When when the Grammys, you know, writes that, or uh, well, whoever the Guardian writes that article, you know, with the Grammys beginning to question what is classical music, Scott, that's a a question that we have been asking for a while. So all of that to say that you can't check me, you can't check us on this conversation. So as we begin to really dig into more nuance of it, I just hope folks understand that as folks that have been here for a while, even before us trying to break this stuff down and hearing that recording of the quiet one definitely mm -hmm. uh, reminds me of that. So yeah. uh, shout out to the late William Grant still. It's going to be interesting to see how we remember him in 30, 40 years when I'm an old man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Maybe we're going to yeah. get him out of here, but who knows? All right. Well, anyway, um, my second movement this week, uh, I want to re return to the opera aesthetic, since I've been uh, thinking about it a lot. So two members of the Triloquy family, uh, uh, Jeff McNeil, uh, also known as The Phantom, The Phantom, collaborated with Babatunde Akimbaboye, an artist who know, is known by Tunde, uh, to create a track called Diabolic, The actually the remix to Diabolic. So I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to press play on this. And Scott, I'm going to get your thoughts. We came here to All right, Scott, we have strings and winds and piano. We have Tunde singing very much in that operatic aesthetic. We have spoken word known to us as rap, but that has appeared in uh, the the Western repertoire as things like Sprechstimme, as the, as mm. the Germans mm -hmm. used to say. I don't hear anything that isn't classical, but what about you? <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> First off, damn, that's a big voice. Listen, listen to him. You, that's what I'm you saying. Said, you said he's he's going by Tune Day now? Tune Day. Does he have other recordings that are available? Could I check out other things? Oh, yeah. Just Google Google his name and you'll, it'll okay. get to his website and you'll find out. Wow. All that. Big voice that grabs you right from the moment. And as I started listening to it, I, I thought immediately about how there are plenty of instances where something has been sampled, you know, like that flute line you really like. Uh, yeah, we'll hear it later today. 
Okay. Uh, I'm going to so, bring it back. But you know what I'm saying? So there, yeah. so there are, there are certain things from the canon that are pulled and then repurposed, you know, like you heard the, the, the chopped up, uh, Tunde's voice in there. Right. Yeah. So, and so that was, that was taken from something existing. So imagine if they recorded things with the idea that they were going to chop it up like that. Yeah. Imagine what you could do. Imagine how effective that could be. Well, you know, if the, instead of sampling it, it was done intentionally like that. That could be really powerful. But let me remind you the the libretti there in that excerpt we heard, Tunde is singing, We came to shut shit down. Shut it down. So that's that doesn't come from an opera that I know. So 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 maybe that that was right. The that's plan, what I'm saying. You know, to, yeah. to do that for that purpose. Just imagine imagine how powerful that could be if you could pre-cut your sample. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what, if you know where it's good. Yeah. That, that, what that piece of music, what that composition reminds me of, you know, what comes to the front of my mind is the fact that we often talk about engaging new communities, diversity, X, Y, and Z. What I feel like a lot of institutions have yet to understand is that when you are working toward bringing communities together, when you're working toward inclusion, you have to accept all of the person, not just the mm -hmm. part of the person that you can stomach or the part of the person that you think is acceptable for your institution. You have to accept all of the person. So when I hear that track, what I hear is an acceptance of all of blackness, black people who are Western classically trained and can play those violin lines and those piano lines. Um, Black people who can sing in that operatic style, but have a different experience, a different approach to it. Folks like the Phantom, who has an affinity for that classical aesthetic and meshes it with hip hop. That is what it sounds like to actually accept the entire community, all of the diverseness of diverse communities. That's not happening yet, though. They want to they want they want us to leave some of right. it at the door. They want us to leave that 808 at the door. They want us to leave our so-called bad language at the door. And all that is, is, again, another one of those manifestations of racism, that word that people are afraid of more than they're afraid of actually being that thing. OK, um, we, 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 we have to have that conversation. And I feel like pieces of music like that help us have that conversation. I don't understand why people would not want to bridge those gaps unless there's something deeply enrooted that, you know, precludes a person from accepting the idea mm. of all of a person's blackness in a space. But anyway, y'all, mm. y'all, y'all know where I can go with that conversation. How about we listen to just a little bit more of the, the end of that track, just to take us out of this bit of the conversation. So even without the drums, the 808 and that sort of thing, if we just had the strings and the piano, that sort of hip hop groove would still be there. And I feel like there would be just as much challenge because of that aesthetic, despite the fact that there is nothing strictly Wesley, Western classical on the stage. There's just an aesthetic we have to learn to accept. And I think dismissing that as the aesthetic is dismissing the people who created the aesthetic and who celebrate the aesthetic. Mm.
And when we can really actually have that conversation honestly and approach it as just straight up being racist, maybe that will be an, enough of a trigger for some people to actually move. Or maybe, I don't know, I, maybe I should get your thoughts on this. Maybe approaching the conversation that way will turn more people off than not, which means they were never there in the first place. But, you know. Yeah, maybe. Was it Marriage of Figaro or? Oh, yeah. Tunde did um, uh, the, the Barber Seville. Mm. Uh, yeah, we we sampled that on Triloquy before his his take on Barbara right. Seville. No, see the the thing is is that you you said something about language, yeah, and, uh, our our so called vulgar language or yeah. how, however you put it. But right. wasn't was it the Marriage of Figaro or the Magic Flute that was challenged when it premiered for its vulgarity? Oh, I'm, um, I'm sure I, one of them. You know, the, I just can't remember which one it is. I, I think it's I think it's the Marriage of Figaro, but we've had these conversations before over the centuries. Right. So right. we're, we're at the nexus of another one. That's what uh, I think. As long as uh, we can, I don't know, whatever. Shout out to the phantom. I, I, I say whatever. <laughs> I just kind of brush it off because I often feel like I'm just repeating myself ad nauseum. But again, pieces of music like this, I think help affirm my point and give people mm -hmm. a glimpse into what the future looks like. Maybe that is what, the sound of an opera house is going to be in 50 years or what it needs to be to engage more communities. That's something that we shouldn't be afraid of. That's something that we should celebrate. But there are so many people that are afraid of that because they're afraid of their white spaces being challenged and turning into something else. If we want to dramatically change who our audiences are, we have to dramatically change the aesthetic. And I'm going to mm. die on that hill. I'm, I'm, I'm there as I work with these different symphonies and these other uh, artistic institutions and more and more of official capacities. I have to I have to press that and I get challenged. I get I get pushback, but I really believe in it. So shout out to the Phantom and to Tunde for putting that together. All right, we're getting into the third movement. This week's guest is Damien Norfleet. And actually, Scott, uh, Damien um, and his partner, Lee Bynum, who works for the Minnesota Opera, uh, they live over in Minneapolis. So this was actually the first in-person interview that I got to do uh, in a while. So it was it was fun having Damien Norfleet into uh, the studio. Damien is a part of of Ensemble Pi, who we have featured on uh, Triloquy before, and they have an upcoming uh, concert that's going to premiere Damien Norfleet's Isolated Triptych. I'm just going to read a little bit of the uh, description here. It says, uh, his latest work examines the prison system and sociological structures, routine personnel and architecture texture and their effects on both inmates and staff. It was created in collaboration with puppeteer and dancer Mara Gayen, and the piece will be performed by Damien Norfleet and Gayen as a part of Radical Kinship uh, on March 2nd. So I'll have uh, links to that in the description. Damien is an incredible vocalist and interdisciplinary performing artist. And we have a conversation where basically we just break down the idea of the prison system and who's oppressed and what our roles can be. Are these real roles? Are we being performative? It's a, a really great conversation that I can't wait uh, to share with y'all. And I was honored to get Damien on the podcast. Uh, you you mentioned that uh, that that track earlier, you know, with the with the flute solo. And I know we mm. talked about it a little bit last week, but I want to make sure, you know, again, for Black History Month, we shout out Isaac Hayes and all of the folks who uh, did so many great things back when, when uh, before youngsters like me were here to understand. So here's a little bit of the opening of Prison Song to get into my conversation with Damien Norfleet. Ah. 
so when when Edith, who is the founder and artistic director of Ensemble Pie, mm -hmm. who's been on Triloquy, shout out to Edith. Yeah, she's great. I, I, I love Edith. I really do. She's not only is she a great artist, we've actually become really great friends, which is so interesting because we're so different in so many ways, but we're, uh, I don't know, I, I really love Edith. I, I, I love, I mean, she's welcomed me into not just her ensemble and not just her artistic world, but literally into her family. Like I, I, I hang out with them, you know, because mm -hmm. I really, I really enjoy, I really enjoy the Cormans. But anyway, um, when she elected, uh, when she decided that this is going to be the theme, of this, of our next big concert. I mean, our last big concert, we really centered on reparations. Yeah, um, and that was a very fulfilling kind of moment because you know these concerts happen, and I hope people get some kind of enjoyment out of them. And I hope you know for the hour and a half we have you, or the hour that we have you, you get something out of it. But months for me in my process, months of research goes in. To these sorts of things and maybe all that research doesn't necessarily make it into onto the stage mm -hmm. you may not even see it but it changes me and affects me as a person which changes and affects how i approach the piece right so that being said edith was like hey we're going to do this next concert and we're going to center on like you know prisons and uh the justice the, the, the so-called justice right. system yeah. <laughs> right. justice system and correctional system and all these kinds of things and and garrett it's there are certain things I have spent enough time with and I've put it in a place where I'm ready to discuss it with the public. Mm -hmm. And by public, I just mean like dif different groups of people. You know, as a black person, prison <laughs> conceptually is just very problematic and i and i don't know like at this moment if i was in a place to discuss it in a meaningful way with other people that were not black i just don't know i, I can't i can get there mm -hmm. you know what i mean i don't i can get there i'm just not there yet and I will get there. I'm just not there yet. So I had to figure out how I could participate in this concert in a way that wasn't, I wasn't shutting down. I was literally shutting down. I mean, I, we, before our little chat, before we came on the air, I was, I was highlighting some, some of our conversation about between our ensemble and, and some of the uh, groups we were thinking about uh, partnering with and some of the people who've been doing a lot of this work for years and having them, you know, educate us and, and give us like some insight and share their story firsthand. Mm -hmm. um, it was hard to hear the things they wanted to talk about because to me, that was not the most important thing. And it was hard for me to discuss these other aspects of our prison system. But what's an example of one of those things that you didn't want to talk these about? These other aspects? Yeah, those other things. Um, like, you know, there are, there are various, uh, organizations that have taken it upon themselves to go into prisons and do things like there are some organizations that are, uh, uh, they have like, you know, their, their goal is to rehabilitate the prisoners and rehabilitate in the sense that like something was wrong with you that landed you in prison. So now that you're here, we're going to try to fix what was wrong with you that landed you in prison. I've got all kinds of problems with that, right? Mm -hmm. We know people land in prison, not because of something that is wrong with them. We, right. We, we are. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? So I was like, mm, you know, I don't have anything to say about that. That is going to be a collaborative kind of 
it's not, it's not going to lead to a collaborative sort of. So, so what's for, your response to the person who's but 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 some people do land in prison because something is wrong with them or they did something wrong? Yeah, sure. That handful of people do, sure. But it's greatly swamped by the number mm -hmm. of people that are in prisons for different kinds of reasons, right. right? Yeah. So what I had to do in particular for this particular concert to happen and me to be able to participate in a way that I felt passionate about something and I felt it was like honest, I had to find the part. And, and, and keep in mind, I've never gone to prison. You know, so I don't tend to, in my work, um, base it on something I can't, firsthand relate to you know and i don't have a, a firsthand connection to prison but i did and i also prefer to create pieces because i'm commissioned to make uh, a performance piece for this for this particular concert and i was really thinking um who's going to see this you know to go back to your other your earlier point about like audiences mm -hmm. who's going to see this and sometimes i make art and it's for me or it's for some higher cause but sometimes especially when it comes to activist work or activist oriented work I don't know if this is the realm for abstraction because like the nature of activist work to me, to me, right, is to communicate something or mm -hmm. to say something. Either you're for something, you're against something, you want some kind of change to happen. This isn't a time to be confusing. Mm -hmm. This is a time for some kind of, you know, you need alacrity and some clarity in this. So I, tr I try to make things a little more pointed into the point. So, so it's not lost, right? Because the, the more effective way is to set your platform is way more effective, in my opinion, in addressing certain topics directly because you're speaking. We don't have to figure out what the symbolism means with this, with the sure. poetry of it. It's sure. just boom, I mean this. And I think that's the way you need to speak about certain topics when you want people to understand. So, so how does that directness play a role in how you're gonna approach this performance? Right. Are, are you just gonna, you know, do like the rapper say, cut the music and just and let me say, and say what you need to say, you know? Maybe. I mean, that's <laughs> not, I mean, that might, yeah, that might happen. But what I was specifically looking for is I was like, well, let me find something about this because prison is evil. Our current prison system is, is wrought with torture. No hyperbole. Like I'm not exaggerating. This isn't flowery speech. Torture happens in prison, right? All kinds of torture. But there was one kind of torture that because I, I i don't also i also didn't want to make a piece in something that's going to get mired and stuck in these places like you said like where these people are going to be like but what about the two people that aren't yeah. doing it that's not the point of this so i was like what is something that america or people en masse can empathize with that is a horrible thing happening in prison right and we've all been in this lockdown kind of situation and we've all felt the effects of what happens when you were confined right we all have, you know, we, words are being thrown around like cabin fever. But the, but the point of that isn't the severity. It's the point that we know what the feelings are. We all know what it felt like to be stir crazy. We all knew what it felt like. We don't know what day it is. We haven't gotten, we haven't put on clothes for three days. We all notice our mood swings. Mm -hmm. We all notice our fatigue levels. We all notice all of these things. We all notice like, oh my God, I've got to invest in self-care. I mean, and, and all of that with access to Uber Eats. And the internet, right. you know. And space and yards and people mm -hmm. coming over safely, all these AC, kinds of things. You know, everything. Air conditioning, basic agency. Mm -hmm. So, it, but even with all of that, we felt the effects, psychological effects of what's happening. All right, fast forward to prisons, right? So they're throwing people in these uh, prisons, which already is confining and already detrimental to your health, mental health, but specifically solitary confinement, right? When people are being placed into these cells, which are 
roughly the size of most of our bathrooms, you know, no access to a window, you know, rotten food is literally served to these people who are in prisons. I mean, there's all kinds of torture that happens, not to mention the abuse that can come from personnel. So, you know, but, but specifically back to the psychological damage that comes from solitary confinement, I was like, you know what, I can relate to the effects of solitary confinement and so can everyone else. Mm. I can highlight, I can do a piece about the wrongs of the torture and everyone can understand like, oh yeah, that does feel horrible. And then like, once you understand like, oh, this is happening, you can, you know, broaden your mind a little bit, do a little Google search. You know I mean, it's, don't take my word for it. You know, the UN, our beloved UN that sets international standards on humanitarian standards and this, that, and the other. They said solitary confinement is torture. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They say like up to two weeks is the most you should ever do everywhere. I mean, you know, then there's United States. Literally before the pandemic, we had numbers of like 50 to 80,000. That's five figures. 50 to 80,000 people we're in solitary confinement on any given day, like in 2020 before before uh, the, the throes of, of this virus and pandemic. Yeah. During the pandemic, that rose like 500%. Like they're like, I mean, we're, we're well over 100,000 people that can be in solitary confinement in a given day. And I mean, let me find the exact number for you because I was gobsmacked. And, you know, I also want to point out that like, this doesn't take a lot of effort for me to find this information. I'm not a research scholar. You know, I didn't go to a research university. Mm-hmm. This is like something anybody can find on their phone. You know, I found some extra numbers because I wanted to make sure I had the most current numbers before I got here. So I looked up some things on my phone, in my lift, just on the way here. Like this is accessible things if you just want to know. You know what I mean? So if you don't know, you just don't want to know. And I think that applies to a lot of what's happening right sure. now, black people in general. But yeah, um, there are 300,000 people you know, according to the Marshall Project, which does a lot of effort documenting some of these numbers about uh, in terms and conditions in prison. I mean, they're saying there's you know numbers like 300,000 people in solitary confinement. That's 300,000 people locked in the space of what we consider our like bathroom sizes, where conditions are like no TV, no this, no that. Lights are on the entire time. Can you imagine trying to rest with fluorescent lights on? Yeah, and we've all yeah, we've all tried to, torture. It's 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 crazy, and this kind of environment is going on not for a few weeks, you know, not for we were all locked down for a year, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Barely, we went, if that. We yeah. all went crazy. There are people who've been in solitary confinement, not prison, solitary confinement for decades. You know, multiple people, (laughs) lots of people have been in solitary confinement for years. Like, this is crazy. And like, you know, again, you don't have to take my word for it or anybody else's word for it. If you believe in science and medicine, there is not a single psychologist or psychiatric practitioner or, or, or scholar that will not tell you that being in solitary confinement and they say that permanent damage can actually occur from this like days sometimes Mm -hmm. as soon as that. All of that fueled me and I could at least empathize with that. So that was a starting point for me. So I just kind of dove in a little bit more and like, why is it torture? That's my question. Yeah. And I think that's a lot of people's questions. They're like, oh, well, why is it so torturous? You know, I don't understand. Well, then, you know, there's all kinds of things. And it basically comes down to agency, which again, this applies to black people at large, right? Because this is the exercise we do in America. We, we, we try to take away people's agency, yeah. right? I mean, slavery is the ultimate. We, slavery, prisons, right. both, both places where the system and the environment is set up for us to have as few 
choices and as little agency as possible. And science and medicine, everything else shows is a direct connection to your agency being in, in, in place and intact to your, you know, your, your mental health being intact. Literally without agency, you literally go, psychosis is, is the result. Like literally, again, no hyperbole. So I went in and just dug in a little bit. I, I nerded out and dove in a little bit more and discovered that there's like, you know, most of the, most people who delve in the world of social scientists, social sciences, like psychiatrists and all these and psychologists, all these folks, you know, there's a lot of study that there's three parts to your agency. You know, there's like the projective agency and there's the iterative agency. And then there's like the evaluative uh, agency with long story short, it's kind of like hopes and dreams, things you project forward. Mm -hmm. That's one part of it. And then, then your memories and past experiences is the iterative one that also helps inform your personhood and keep you balanced. And then it's also like, what's happening right now in the now? And do you have the ability to react to it? Um, and that's the last one. And so I just dug a little deeper. I'm like, is there a direct correlation to that, to this solitary confinement in prisons, right? And, um, you know, you can talk to people and hear their firsthand accounts. And we've got some people, you know, here to tell their story. And it's, you know, they're not, they're not, being told by us what to say, you know, it was an invitation and they accepted it and, you know, and they want to share their story and we are allowing them to, you know, and they're as much a part of the process as anyone else, you know, they get to be involved in this. They are curating their piece. They're not just here and here's a little bit of space. We're going to let you do something that we're going to give. you know, it's not that we actually want to hear what they have to say because people need to hear what they want to say. How do you, how, how are you engaging the conversation of what these incarcerated individuals uh, their levels of interest in this if the circumstances were different. I can understand how any incarcerated person might be moved to have a conversation with you or other collaborators or, or offer anything. If they were free, maybe they wouldn't give a damn about improvised music or, or whatever. How, how, do you, how do you weigh the, the circumstance with what you're cultivating in this, in this project? I'm sorry, I didn't quite understand the question. You mean to so 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 basically, we're dealing with the subject matter of individuals who don't have this agency fully that you're speaking to. I feel like oh, a part of that that right. I feel like a part of what has to be considered is the way in which that lack of agency meets your complete agency as an artist and the intersection that isolated triptych lives in. When we, when we talk about. Oh, that. yeah. Well, I am not directly collaborating with any of our guests on this concert. Um, I, 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 I was asked to. Um, and, and I, and I kind of said no. Hmm. And it's because I feel like I need to listen. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, 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 need, to, I need to listen I want to listen to them. I need to hear what they want to say um, as much as like, I think our audience needs to hear them. I need to hear them too. So I'm doing some pieces independently and then their numbers is really all them. I mean, they are literally the MC. Well, one of them is literally an MC um, that's involved in the concert. That's also a welcome guest. Um, but it, yeah, they, you know, some of them decided to just write narratives out about their story. Some of them decided um, they wanted to, to make songs in their own. Some of them wanted to come and be there with us and deliver their own things. Some of them were like, I'd rather somebody else do. I, I mean, there was all these kinds of different things. And we were like, well, what do you want to do? I mean, it, we gave them the same approach that we all take with ourselves. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I don't know. I, th I just think it's such a moment for me to listen and to learn and 
there are times with my platform, I, you know, we, we both have these platforms where information is kind of goes a direction, right? You know, we are sitting on this side of the microphone, right? And that is a bulk of our work. But I really thought in this particular moment in time with this particular subject matter, I needed to listen. Mm -hmm. So my piece isn't dealing with their personal stories. I'm, I'm going to celebrate them as much and, and try to enjoy them as much. My piece is really just inspired by this, like the, the, the structure three structures in particular of prison that are specifically made to tear down agency. Mm -hmm. And it's like the, it's the, the physical structure, the personnel and the routine, you know, they, you know, sitting in, they tell you what space you're in. And that does a lot. We all know that firsthand, what happens with being stuck in a room, yeah. but they also have these elaborate rules. You wake up at this time, you do this at this time. And it just like, you have no choice. And, and that's how the routine of prison also attacks your agency and when your agency is gone that's when you can't have the that's like you, you it's complete psychosis you no longer can access and process your emotions and so many people who are in, in solitary confinement come out with se severe cases of agoraphobia yeah and they just you know and then we throw them back out into the world right and then we you know as if that's not enough we also practice this thing here in america called uh civic death are you familiar with that i'm not civic death dates back at least at least as far back as the roman empire where the practice is if you are found guilty and labeled a criminal you lose your citizenship you lose the right to vote does that sound familiar you lose access to public funds and resources does that sound familiar mm -hmm. you know all these kinds of things you basically are stripped of your citizenship and it's what we do here despite what our constitution says so when you were found guilty of uh, a crime, not a misdemeanor, but a felony, yeah. if you were made uh, labeled a felon, you know we already know you're disenfranchised. We know you can't vote, right? And and it varies state to state and time to time, but across the board, you can't vote. You also are no longer allowed access to federal grants, which means like if you want to go to school, I may figure it out without a Pell grant. I, mean, I don't know, figure it out. You know you aren't allowed to have great well-paying jobs because here we have a practice of like have you ever been convicted of a felony mm -hmm. check this box so the incarceration continues the, the, the walls become continues. invisible but the walls are still there yeah completely continues so they they prison they can't have uh marriages children probably can't get a passport i would imagine you definitely can't get a passport you know there's, there's all these things that are continually being contested but like you know uh custody disputes in divorces, you don't have a say. Usually, if somebody files for disorder, you know, you both go to court and blah, 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 blah. You get a say, but none of that. Carte blanche to the other spouse, like, right, no questions asked. So, there's all of that. But it, it's there. The reason why I couldn't participate in this kind of environment of uh, anything other than prison being an extenuation yeah. of slavery I, I can't talk about anything else when it comes to that so it, and it's and again i was like well how did i arrive here you know I, I like to make sure i like to try i like to let my thoughts and feelings go where they go and then after i calm down a bit i like to be like am i crazy like am i am i just speaking off left hand am i just mad yeah, maybe it's just me yeah does yeah. somebody look at me wrong today you know what i mean <laughs> right. but then i was like let me just let me just check yeah you know i was let me just let me just go check and and we're in america you know if you want to be a citizen, you sign, you basically sign a, a contract that you're going to abide by the constitution mm -hmm. and we're all supposed to do that. Right. And it, and because we were dealing with things like this solitary confinement and long sentences and all these kinds of things, 
of course, my first the first place I went is the Eighth Amendment, right? Which says it's the one about you know no cruel and unusual punishment, sure. right? Which is interesting. Unless dot dot dot, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's just. But the interesting thing about it is is the language of these three amendments where I took myself right. The Eighth Amendment reads as no cruel and unusual punishment can be inflicted, not you know, not sustained, mm-hmm. not endured, inflicted. Okay. All right. No, no, no uh, excessive bail can be required. Okay. So you're not allowed to require excessive bails. You're not allowed to like inflict certain punishments. They're not talking to us. Mm-hmm. I don't get to inflict punishments. I don't get to set bails. They're talking to people who get to do that. Right. Y'all know who that is. And then, so that reads weird. I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. Right. And then there's another amendment that we talk about because, you know, when you go through this thing, and we were talking about it earlier, prison, whatever we want to call our prison system, whatever, it's completely an extension of slavery, right? We know how, like, fugitive slave law went into this, and then these people running around, round people up. But we know with how that grew and, right. and what, what, um, what do we call them? What do, what, what do they call them? What do they like to call themselves? Or our our finest or oh yeah, yeah. Or, right yeah see that language doesn't even live in my spirit so <laughs> i just like the what but anyway yeah. it's it's so it's so any but like when you when you read this like slavery is not a thing anymore it's not a thing anymore it's not a thing anymore because we passed the 13th amendment which we referenced earlier but i just want everyone to listen to the exact language of the 13th amendment because it's just like okay well that's cool and it says like neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime, whereas the party shall be duly convicted, shall exist within the United States and our, and our, and our things. So they, they, they clearly identify prison as punishment for something, right? So being that that's been what's established, it's hard for me to have a conversation about the rehabilitative qualities of prison. That's not what it's there for. Mm-hmm. That's, that's not what it says. It's right. not what it says, right? And, right. and that's and that's and that's just difficult for me to to swallow. So so I'm doing a piece on the effects of solitary confinement and just trying to shed some light on how this torture is happening in our prison. And there, it's just ridiculous. So the piece itself, for those who don't want to go into like, because sometimes listen, music can be what we do and art can be what we do it, yes it can be activist you know it can be a tool of activism it can be all that but i do understand that for some people this is entertainment and some people want to, to go to a concert to be entertained and they want this escapism and this kind of that so for people who want to come to the concert for the sake of like I, well, what's the entertainment value isolated triptych and you know it could also be described as it's you know it, it is a three-part piece as the name just, you know mm-hmm. implies that is you know and it's it involves spoken word and 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 song and movement and um, scene work, and it's a theater piece on in some levels too. So it, and in a lot of improvisation and there is um, and puppetry and a lot of these like uh, modes of performance are chosen on purpose, right? I mean, I my collaborator, I'm, I'm working with someone on this thing. Her, her, first of all, she's brilliant. Her name is Mara Gayen, and I got to work with her this past summer. Um, because I did, uh, I did, uh, I worked with the company. There's a company called the Bread and Puppet um, Theater Company, which is an activist puppet theater. Imagine who, that. I, yeah. Who knew? Um, and who knew? And they've also been like in business and active like since like 
sixties. Mm. I mean, it's been around for a while. Mm. They started in the, in the Lower East Side of New York, but it's 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 a it's they do all kinds of interesting work. Look them up when you all get a chance. It's called Bread and Puppet Theater. But anyway, I worked with them on this piece, which led me to meeting this brilliant movement artist named Mara, and we just discovered that, you know, I've done a lot of different kind of performing. You know, I've been in movies and i've been in tv shows i've been in operas i've been in musicals i've been in plays and i've played the bassoon i played the saxophone you know i've done all these kinds of things but i've never really uh, delved into this world of poetry uh, poetry puppetry mm -hmm. and um it was interesting i didn't realize how much of a blessing this particular skill set and, and experience would be for this because it's also a very interesting thing like instead of me operating a hand puppet this movement artist this dancer amara gayan who's again she's so brilliant she's the puppet and mm. she is going to react to my words and um and then to varying degrees we're going to show how you know when, when i'm puppeteering with her she's got no say in what happens and then like we gradually have distance between us and she has a different level of agency and my character has a left lesser amount of agency and and then built in with within all of that is the fruits of our research about the effects of of the structures of prison and how it deteriorates your agency and yeah. all that kind of stuff. But how are we going to handle this involvement of um, these people telling their stories? Because it it ties into something else that has been really bothersome for a lot of us as black artists during this time, you know, every February, but particularly right now in this season of this new resurgence and interest in- Alleged uh, awareness. Yeah. <laughs> all of that stuff, yeah. right? And because we all, you know, you talk to one composer, you talk to one flautist, you talk to whatever, and we might have different instruments and slightly different interests, but it all comes down to like everyone wants us to talk about this, you know, you know, it's, it's, and that's which means that system of labor, those power structures, those power dynamics are still very much at play, even within arts ecosystems. Yeah, you know, and it's and it's it's do your it's we we were interested in your pain. We're not interested in this. We want this very specific thing. Now, it is is that wrong across the board, Garrett? And this is where I where I get because at one moment, I talk to some of my friends and peers and myself, and they have lots of things, things being criticisms. I should just use that word. They have a lot of criticisms of our fair institutions and how they're being treated and how they don't want to be treated anymore and how this, that, and the other. And there's conversations of ownership and entitlement and all these kinds of things. And they need to be discussed. Let me let me let me wrap us up by oh asking you this. Talk about anything I want to talk about. <laughs> I ramble, I tell you. Um I was, you know, another thing that you said that really resonated me was resonated with me was how people are more engaged if they understand. You know, we're talking yeah. about language, but I think it can be bigger than just language, understanding the point, understanding the subject matter, understanding the goals. So as we look ahead to this performance that includes isolated triptych, how are you going to make sure that you're doing everything you can do to be understood in what you're presenting, considering the nuance and the broadness of what this project is? You know, I think the, the first thing about being understood is listening. You know, I think we spend so much time on figuring out I can be understood and we immediately go to our deportment. We immediately go on. If I say it like this, they'll get this idea. We, we just listen. People, they don't make it hard. You know, listen to the response. Like if you're doing something and people are, you know, checking their texts, unwrapping wrappers, you know, doing this, 
looking looking down looking at corners they're not engaged and if they're not engaged then you're not you're not gonna then and if your goal is for them to be engaged you need to change what you're doing you know you can't keep having i can't keep holding on to these specifically in this piece there's an abstract nature to it um but like in the moments i want them to understand exactly what's happening then it's like are they getting it like this no then let me let me adapt to them like there's there's a certain amount of humility as a performer that if you want to be understood you have to understand that part of that responsibility is on you if i want if, if i want a group of greek people to understand me it behooves me to learn how to speak greek you know if i want a spanish-speaking audience to understand me it behooves me to learn how to speak spanish if i want a the black blacks, audience let's just say <laughs> if i want a bunch of black people to understand or be interested in what i'm doing my goal isn't well let me go teach them how to understand what i'm doing my you've got a humble like if you want them to come then you've got to be like huh well maybe i need to include things that other people like in what i'm doing and if that manifests itself by like you know people want to see other people that look like them then maybe you need to hire more black people if it manifests itself that people are like, I don't understand this music. Like, I don't understand this atonal thing. I don't get it. I don't understand this like four, five, one. I don't understand why there's so many piccolos. Like, if you don't understand that, <laughs> right. you know, if I don't hear a beat, I don't hear a beat. This isn't music. If, if, if a group of people you want to come cherish things like beats, I don't know, make some music with a beat. You know, if you want a young crowd to come, what are the kids listening to? Figure out a way to, you know, figure out a way to bring that into it. You know, it's, 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 there's a level of humility and 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 just it's humility. I think in these hallowed halls, again, I think the biggest lesson is humility. I think a lot of these people who make these decisions that are really good at it, you know, these administrators who make all these decisions, these presidents of these things and these organizers and all these new positions opening up across the board, you know, there's all these you know, now I have a, I'm a director of this. I'm, I'm in charge of impact and I'm in charge of this. I'm in charge of bringing in brown people. You know, all these new positions people are making and some of them I think are better than others. You know, I think some people are, have a different grasp on it. It's all new territory. Everyone's trying to figure it out. We'll see. <laughs> you know, we'll see which one is the way to do it. And maybe there's multiple ways to do it. You know, and also it's not a constant. You know what I mean? That's the other thing I think I want us all to realize. We are not bones we are growth plates at the moment this is the point we are at the literal point where change is happening there is going to be a, a, a amount of trial and error just like with the new piece right you write a new piece you're trying out a new technique oh my god i'm gonna try a i'm gonna try a harder read today you know let's try it out sometimes you're like yes that was bomb mm -hmm. sometimes you're like oh god you know that I, could, I couldn't i couldn't even access my top register with this hard ass but it's read. the trying it's the trying it's the trying it's the effort now that doesn't mean listen we're not handing out e for effort grades here like you that were still too. accountable yeah like applaud you for trying but you were still accountable for your results like this isn't a carte blanche thing like you don't get to try and fail and, and end up being that people are still not granted access and not happy and still feeling like boo boo the fool and feeling mistreated you still are responsible for the results but yes i i give you a sensible appropriate golf clap is that what they call it? A golf clap? Mm -hmm. Is that a call or a tennis clap? <laughs> Maybe an opera. Is clap. it a golf? I'll give you an opera <laughs> clap for your effort. But you know, I'm 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 more interested. I'm less interested in the efforts as I am in the results. And I will patiently wait for some results. And if the results aren't what people want, you know, you have every right 
to continue to support these organizations if you want, but you also have every right to not. You know, there's there's another thing, and I, I hate, and I'm sorry, I know you got to go, but th the last thing I want to leave my peers with, because it's not always about talking to the audience, it's not always about talking to these people running these organizations. Sometimes it's talking to peers. Like, yes, we're in a very unfair fucked up situation like mm -hmm. what's happening is a little fucked up and i think it, it, and it's ridiculous that people who train and are at the levels that they are have to engage in all of this just to work like sometimes you don't want to you know sometimes you just want sometimes you just want to be happily black sometimes you just want to be comfortably black sometimes you don't want to have to come there and be ready to like tie your hair up because somebody's going to talk to you sideways sometimes you just want to be comfortably black and sometimes you want to be comfortably black in spaces that aren't designated as black spaces and we're going to get there but always remember you know everyone is not granted access to you yes there's this conversation of we want access to these spaces but mm -hmm. there's you know you also don't have to grant people access to you like if we didn't learn anything about this by this lockdown period is that we've we've got reach there's all kinds of virtual performances there are all kinds of new spaces and like you know we've got a different reach Yes, it's awesome to sing at these places that got these big pocketbooks. You know, it's nice to sing for a $60,000 contract. You know, that's nice. I get that. That doesn't take a lot of thought. But sometimes you have you know, sometimes you've got to be a little truer to yourself and if 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 that means you're going to lend your talents and your gifts to a space that is respectful of your talents and your gifts. And maybe that space doesn't have ivory columns and a gold curtain. You know what I mean? Maybe that space doesn't have it right now. Sometimes people learn, you, you know, people will, when people have no longer have access to you, they will respect you. You know, like if, if they can treat you this way and you're still going to do it, the lesson is, is that they can treat you this way. So just yeah. be mindful of that. Sometimes we need to say no. Like sometimes they're like, hey, we're gonna give you fifty thousand dollars to do this, and here's some conditions that you don't like. Sometimes you got to say no, and you know, start your own companies. You know, there's there's a lot of interesting things to be done. You know, we've got resources, we've got a lot of talent. We can start our own companies. We can start our own orchestras. A lot of people have. You know, shout out to those who are doing it. We can support our own. You know, we've got all these all star great talents that regularly lend themselves to certain kinds of organizations you know lend your lend your voice and your talent sometimes to some of these black owned organizations and and black ensembles and and people doing that like don't you know don't forget that too like that is also how we help each other you know like let's yes let's make sure that they back to the days let's make sure that the days are doing right too but then like let's 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 you know let's, let's get take some, care of us let's take care of us well. like let's you know let's invest in ourselves and take ourselves seriously and just not allow people to treat us any old kind of way. We don't have to sing in their spaces. We don't have to create for them. We don't have to. We can when we want to. You know, if it's a respectable, if it's a respectful, mutually beneficial contract that's being offered, then take it. If it's not the kind of contract you want, don't take it. And you're allowed to tell people why you didn't take it, but you don't have to subject yourself to some of these things. Now, sometimes you have to, and we'll work that out. That's another conversation on another podcast. But like, but you know, take care of yourself first. Don't let, don't, don't let them run this. Don't, you know, don't let them run you down too much to where you're not functioning to where you can't even be happy and you can't catch a breath. Like don't let this fight, even though it's an important fight, don't let it occupy every inch of your artistic identity. It's an important fight, but it can't be all of what you are.
My name is Elijah McLean. I have my ID right here. I'm an introvert. I, I don't eat meat. I'm just different. Damien Norfleet featured there in a piece called Requiem with Ensemble Pie. Of course, the person who he's referring to is Elijah McLean, the young black violinist from Colorado who tragically lost his life at the hands of police officers. Scott, a lot of people talk about becoming numb to the conversation of police brutality and all of that sort of thing. And I think we have all fallen victim of that based on the tragic number of times that these things happen. Elijah McLean's murder hit me different because as I always say, this was a young black boy who literally played violins for kittens in his free Mm -hmm. time and ended up getting killed. And going back to that conversation of how the respectability is not going to save you, being an upstanding violin playing young man doing all the right things did not save his life. And that's why we have to never sideline this conversation and make sure we are highlighting the role that we play, the roles that we play in dismantling the scourge that is police brutality, because it could literally be any of us. And as you have said in the past, when they're done with us, who's next? When you run out of enemies, you have to start eating at the inadequate ones among the ones that Mm -hmm. are with you. Mm -hmm. So the ones who aren't as strong or aren't as smart, maybe they're, uh, maybe they have uh, something like polio or, or, or something like that, that inhibits them. It'll start to turn on itself. That's what happens. I've been inspired based on that conversation with Damien. And then last week's conversation where, uh, I featured heartbeat opera and what they're doing with Fidelio and using, uh, prison choruses. Scott, I think we need to go. (laughs) I think, I think we need to go to jail. I think we need to go to one of these facilities and find a musician and talk with them. When we talk about bridging gaps, connecting communities, that's a part of it. So what do you think? Will you, will you join me in, uh, and, 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 and doing that work? Would you feel comfortable recording an interview inside of a facility? I think so. The journalist in me, that makes, that, that makes all sorts of senses tingle. Yeah. Because that's where the story is it's not the representative of the prison out in front at the gate you know giving some sort of an interview and it's certainly no one within the classical music industrial complex because those are people that they have thrown away as well and forgotten about whether they understand it or not class solidarity that's what i'm working toward all right Uh, as we get into this uh, last movement i want to talk a little bit just for a second for some context about an activist named Joe Hill. Again, Caesar put this person on my uh, radar. Uh, I'll, I'll put a link to the Wikipedia in the description, but I'm just going to read a little bit from it here for uh, for folks to understand. So uh, Joe Hill was an immigrant and immigrant worker. And in 1914, he was wrongfully accused of uh, uh, a murder. Uh, someone came to the hospital 
uh, shot and, uh, you know, in, in trouble bleeding. And later on that night, Joe Hill came and after refusing to explain what occurred, you know, when it came to his injury, he was convicted of the murders uh, in a very controversial trial. It says here, following un an unsuccessful appeal, political debates and international calls for clemency from high profile figures and workers organizations, Joe Hill was executed in November of 1915. After his death, he was memorialized by several folk songs. His life and death have inspired books and poetry. So to connect this back to Paul Robeson, who we were talking about um, at the beginning, he use those folk songs and would go in these minds and, and, and sing among these working people, these songs, not only bridging the racial gap, because he'd be the only black person there. These miners were white. So um, mm. bringing not only bringing the racial component together, but the class solidarity. These miners were poor. These miners were broke, broker, way broker than Paul Robeson. But he wanted them to know that he believes in them as well. And as if, if we can unite on one front, we could really change the world, but we just have to demolish racism before we can, you know, all see each other on the same page from that class perspective. Anyway, to get us into the final movement, I wanted to um, use a recording, uh, share a bit of a recording from 1949, where Paul Robeson is singing to a group of Scottish miners. The tune he's singing is I Dreamed I Saw Joe Hill Last Night. Let's take a listen. Eyes, says Joe what they can never kill went on to organize went on to organize i dreamed i saw joe hill last night alive as you and me says i but joe you're ten years dead i never died says he I never died, says he. I never died, says he. It really gives me goosebumps. I'll, I'll link the video in the description to see all of these white folks really tuned in and engaged by this black man again way back in the depths of Jim Crow and uh and you know all all of those things i think one of the first steps we have to take though scott is convincing people across racial lines in the working class that you are also oppressed i feel like we take that word and we conjoin it with communities of color queer people, uh, women, other, other marginalized groups, but mm -hmm. the white man working a, at a job, you know, making $20 an hour, maybe even $30 an hour, you know, doing the best he can to pay his rent or mortgage every month, uh, who is impacted by rental spikes across the country, especially as they happen in Knoxville. If we can even convince them that this is going to benefit you, we can get somewhere. What are your ideas on convincing the person who doesn't see themselves as oppressed, that they are indeed oppressed, maybe not by racial constructs, but certainly by capitalist constructs. Dude, I have been trying to get extended family to see that for a while. Extended, and, and, and not to presume anything, but extended family who don't have it nearly as good as you do, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I told you my dad grew up 
dirt poor, oldest of 13. Yeah. And all of my aunts and uncles and many of my cousins would benefit from policies that they vote against, you know, and, and I'm trying to make them see that they are not that different from the very people that they are villainizing as, you know, getting help or subsidized, or the only reason why you are where you are is because the government stepped in all those conversations. <sighs> we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll, 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 we'll get there. All right. We're in the fourth movement. I'm going to um, bring up a, a, a few trill things. And actually, Scott, I have a hard stop in eight minutes, so we have to <laughs> not <laughs> spend too long here, but okay. uh, the, the, the first one I'm going to uh, speak to that, that we'll speak to briefly. Uh, I'm, I'm reading from national affairs. John Del Vento put this on my uh, radar. So shout out to him. Just an excerpt hey, here. Um, it, so, so this deals with uh, uh, Stanford university and um, one of their Black-themed uh, housing facilities is called the Ujama uh, is, is the name of the facility. Anyway, I'm reading here. It says, one October evening, some undergraduates in Ujama had argued over a Black student's claim that all music in America has African origins. When the discussion turned to Beethoven, the Black student said that Beethoven was Black. Several white students openly doubted the claim. The student who admitted to uh, defacing a Beethoven poster later said he had done it because it was, quote, good opportunity to show the black students how ridiculous it was to focus on race. So they took this uh, giant poster of Beethoven that was somewhere on campus, colored him, black faced him, uh, spray painted a huge afro on him and hung that over in the Ujama house again as i just read there to say how ridiculous this is okay so this is what i want to bring to you it's one thing for us to engage these conversations you know and affirm all american music as black music as we have over and over again on this podcast and the receipts that we have for that you know not just talking but actually pointing to those black origins there are students who are completely isolated in places like Stanford and live in that truth and understand that truth and are met with that sort of racist response. Is there something to be said about the trouble that folks like you and me or folks across the professional industry are creating for folks in earlier parts of, of their trajectory and the, the mm. issues that they have to face? Is there something so that asking, we can do about that or that we should asking. be thinking about? You're asking me if we're making it worse for the for the next generation. Is that what? It, what I, I, maybe I, I and I know that's a weird question to ask and to think about, but I can't help but to think about it. Well, look what we were handed. Listen, period. <laughs> <laughs> I just, again, we don't have a whole bunch of time today, but I'm I'm going to link that. In, in the description and everyone doing this activist work, this liberation work, I'm not saying cool off for the sake of anything. But what I am saying is that we have to remember that there are folks in earlier parts of their trajectories. And we have to always remember that there is a cost to this change making work isn't going to happen just because it happens, you know, and everybody's going to be happy. There's going to be some uncomfortable conversations and some really bad situations that folks are going to get pulled into. So I just want to encourage everyone to remember those folks. And if you have especially college age students uh, in your life who are interested in these conversations to support them in every way you can, because it's easy 
to be talked out of something, to be gaslit, especially by professors or older students when you're 19 years old, 20 years old, you know, so we have to do everything we can to make sure that they stay the course. And then, um, and let me just quickly mention that uh, the Las Vegas Philharmonic, the Las Vegas Philharmonic, uh, I forgot to mention it last week, actually did tell me that uh, wearing all black instead of a colonizer uniform will be fine. So I'm gonna offer a little applause to the Las Vegas Philharmonic. I'll be there playing second bassoon in May. Dell is going to come to Vegas with me where we will be featuring music of Juan Pablo Contreras, who's been on Mm -hmm. Triloquy. So it's going to be exciting to play a bit of his music and uh, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, but who cares? Anyway. uh, (laughs) So anyway, shout out to the Las Vegas Philharmonic. I'm excited to get back on stage in my all black. To, to do that concert. The last thing I want to uh, get to, I'm going to have this in the description. I'm reading here from uh, clarionledger.com. I'm just going to uh, read verbatim here. It says, a video on social media sparked a surge in signatures on a petition asking Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves to pardon a woman sentenced to life in prison without parole as a habitual offender for possessing less than two ounces of marijuana. Tamika Drummer received a life sentence in 2008 after she was pulled over for an expired license plate in northern Mississippi's Alcorn County and officers found marijuana in her vehicle. Drummer was sentenced as a habitual offender because of previous convictions. We have a black woman, Scott, spending life in jail because a police officer found some weed in her car. And we have a woman in Minnesota named Kim Potter, who is going to end up serving less than two years for straight up murdering someone. What can, what, what can I possibly say? How there can we put, how can, how can we put any trust? How can we be expected to put any trust in our legal systems when we have these two stories set side by side? It's impossible. So we need to get beyond the nice talk. We need to get beyond all of these ideas of slow change, because while you're talking about while people are talking about playing the long game, you have a woman spending her entire life, the rest of her life in jail. There is a petition. I'll link it in the description. These are things we have to think about. If this is the nature of our justice system, if this is the evidence we have, why isn't an institution that has been traditionally even wider absolved from being one of those bad guys? I think we really need to contextualize it in this way. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this Opus of Triloquy. Again, I hope that y'all will tune in to I Can't Breathe, a very poignant opera by Leslie Burrs and Brandon Gibson that I have the pleasure I have the pleasure of conducting. Again, links to that into the description. And I will see y'all back in the studio, hopefully, if everything goes well, next week. Thanks for tuning in.